Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And Shannon, for leading us this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4 where we're going to be this morning. So John 4, I think at the top of your notes it still says John 3. That's not accurate there, so just follow along with what the actual Scripture is. Scripture text is found there below. That's where we'll be, John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 43 and read to 54. So John 43, we'll read there from 43 to verse 54 and the end of chapter 4 this morning. So let's Read, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll dive in to our text. So, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, the Bible says, After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And so he, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And went on his way, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Bring clarity to this passage. We pray you would help us to understand you better, to understand a uh, picture of your son, the Lord Jesus, and that, Lord, in knowing him, that we may know you. Uh, in knowing him, we may know salvation. We may know eternal life. And, Lord, we may know the one true God. And as a result, Lord, see our sinful state, uh, see our need for salvation, and see our constant dependence even after salvation upon abiding in Christ and he in us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to uh, not only understand your word, but apply your word, worship under and alongside your word, that, Lord, we would, it may lead us and guide us, may it instruct us. And, uh, Father, I pray that, Lord, in a perverse and wicked generation that still seeks signs, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, the biblical warrant, the biblical mandate, biblical understanding for signs and their purpose in our in our time, the purpose in uh, biblical times so that, Lord, we could understand the abuses of supposed signs even today, but, Lord, then also to be able to give truth and to help those who may be deceived. And so, Lord, aid us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I alluded to in the prayer, that's exactly what our aim is this morning. See, the title is going to aid us in that. Our theme is going to be this second sign. And the purpose of signs, why the Bible speaks of signs, why John in his gospel is going to communicate to us signs and signs that are being accomplished at the hands of Jesus. And so the purpose behind signs. And with that, uh, I briefly alluded to this back in John chapter 2 when there was the first sign was listed, the very first sign that Jesus performed that's recorded, or let me say this, the first recorded sign that was recorded anywhere in the scripture, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Uh, and so I alluded to that, that there was much that would speak of miracles. Many will today in our time speak of miracles. I think that uh, there can be a lack of understanding, a lack of clarity. And so with that, we can maybe confusing when we would speak of a miracle in a, in a way that the Bible does not speak of it. And so I wanted us to spend a few minutes, uh, since the text really lays it out there for us, it's communicating a need for us to pay attention to a sign, for us, too, to pay attention to signs, how they have been used in the Bible, how they are used, and how we're supposed to understand the usage uh, even for our day today. And so for that, I want us to uh, spend a few moments just trying to unpack those. If at any point throughout the course here, uh, my reference uh, may include you, my definition may uh, 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 include you and how you would use the terms, by no means am I trying to poke at anyone in particular, uh, just the general uses of those. And so uh, if it does apply to you, just know that I'm not thinking of you specifically, but just thinking of how this is being used and may us learn from that so that we would not utilize these types of terminologies and manners that wouldn't be accurate. So uh, I don't have any agenda for any specific person in this audience or even those who may be listening via podcast. It's simply just a means of trying to communicate clarity of how the Bible would use the word sign and for us to be able to see it. So with that being said, let's dive right into our notes there. Not anything you have to fill in as far as blanks to fill in. So if you're uh, looking for something to do, then there will be plenty of notes you can take and scripture references for me to um, for you to write down, so I'm, uh, you can pay attention to those. They will be coming rapid fire all throughout our, our lesson this morning. So, first thing I want us to see is the definition and usage of the word "sign" in the Bible. Now, this may be what part of the problem is is that many, many times in the Bible and in our own language today, we can have words that have multiple meanings. Right? Same word, multiple usages, multiple meanings. And so, as a result of that, I think this is one of them. And as you look at the definition and uses of the word sign in the Bible, there's two primary definitions. There's two primary usages of that word. First being a simple sign or a distinguishing mark whereby something is known. So this would be just very like we would drive down the expressway and there'll be exit signs, right? Or there'll be signs that will tell us there's a variety of restaurants. You can drive by and see Steak and Shake. And as you're driving, that's definitely an exit you want to get off on, right? And you'll be able to Go and enjoy Steak and Shake, right? Uh, there might be a Chick-fil-A or some certain sign you think, hey, man, I would like to stop and frequent this particular restaurant. And it's just an indicator at the, this next exit or the, our future exit, there is going to be, uh, it will help us to know something that's going to happen. It's going to help us know a uh, distinguishing mark in, in the future of something that, that can be identified. And this is how the Bible would use that uh, as well. If you begin to think about Jesus' betrayal, Matthew chapter 26 Verse 40, 48, it says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, a distinguishing mark where something can be recognized, right? And so that's all that means. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. So Judas had an indicator, a distinguishing uh, uh, activity, a distinguishing mark that he said, Hey, 
when I kiss this guy, this is going to be your sign. This is going to be the indicator of something you need to pay attention to. This is the man you're going to want to arrest. This is going to be Jesus of Nazareth. Mark chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Tell us when these things, these are uh, individuals talking to Jesus. Tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign? What will be the distinguishing mark, the indicator, that will, uh, when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so they're desirous to know when these uh, final events are going to take place, and they're communicating to Jesus. They tell us when that we'll have a distinguishing mark. Tell us when there will be an indicator that we can pay attention to. Once again, same thing in Matthew 24, as Jesus is given instructions. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when we w- these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? What can we begin to look for, right? And what can be a distinguishing mark? What can be an indicator uh, for us that we will not miss it, or we can have an idea of what's going to be transpiring? And so those are just a few that for us to be able to think through is how the Bible speaks of a sign being simply a distinguishing mark, right? Just like we would see uh, a sign on the road that would begin to tell us that there's caution, there could be uh, ice on the road, caution, there's a, a, it's a detour, we want to pay attention uh, for it to be able to communicate something to us. And then a second primary way it's used is not just as a distinguishing mark, but an, as an event, as an event. It's an indication or confirmation of intervention by a transcendent power, right? So ultimately, God steps in into our world, basically, is what this is communicating. Uh, not always, but uh, in, in many ways. And so we would be able to describe that in at least a couple of ways, in a couple of ways, and for us to be able to see that. Number one would be a miracle, a miracle. And this is where we're going to be I'm trying to bring clarity here for us this morning how we would utilize the term miracle and how we would talk about the term miracle. And so a miracle would be of divine origin performed by God himself. Right? So God will perform miracles by Christ, God in the flesh, or by men of God. And so you'll see this all throughout um, uh, the Bible that God is performing miracles. Right. And so Exodus 7 verse 3 but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs, right, so these be these miracles, uh, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then it continues on to communicate why the purpose of that. But ultimately, God is performing something. He's performing miracles, right? So he's performing uh, an, an act of an indication or confirmation of, the, uh, of intervention by transcendent power. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, once again speaking of the time of Moses and Pharaoh and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And so we saw a miracle take place that God interacted with humanity in a miraculous way. This is exactly what the Pharisees are wanting Jesus to do when Jesus was on the scene. They wanted him to perform some kind of a miraculous um, indicator, confirmation of, of intervention by God himself. And if he's saying he's God, they wanted to see this. And so in Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus to test him and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. I want to see some miraculous activity that is not going to be explained uh, by just uh, human origins. And this needs to be an indicator or a confirmation of intervention from a transcendent power. And so if you're saying you're God, I want to see God-like activity. I want to see something that cannot be explained. Acts 2.43, and all came upon every soul, and many uh, wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so here you're seeing the apostles are able to accomplish things. And so as we saw it by God um, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 7, we see it with Jesus himself, 
Uh, and what we're going to be studying today was a perfect example of that. And then even through the apostles. Again, in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, um, among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. And so there can be uh, miraculous events, a divine intervention in the, in the lives of human people, and it will be able to confirm or authenticate a message or a messenger. Now, with that being said, miracles can be accomplished, though, not simply uh, at, by God, but it can be uh, accomplished by Satan, a miracle worked by Satan or his agents to mislead God's people. And there's m- many references to this in the Scripture, Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false, prophet, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see the same Word is in Mark, Mark chapter 13, verse 22. For false Christ, false prophets will arise, perform signs and wonders to lead straight, if possible, the elect. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And so there's a different way that uh, Satan is coming in to be able to do things and be able to accomplish things if an attempt to lead uh, men and women to not trust the Lord. And so the second primary way, right, we saw was that it would be an indicator, it would be a, a sign to be able to demonstrate that, uh, uh, to be able to communicate something to the individuals as far as uh, just a simple uh, distinguishing mark, right? And then the second one is that you're seeing God himself move and interact with his people. I saw that first in miracles and then second in portents, a portent. What is that? It's simply a sign or a warning that something, especially something momentous, or calamitous is likely to happen, right? So these will be terrifying appearances in the heavens that were never seen before as a warning or a sign that something calamitous or momentous is about to happen, especially in the last days, right? And so this is what Luke 21, 11 would speak of. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be great terrors and great signs from the heavens. And so ultimately it's a warning, an indicator, a warning of something that's going to be taking place, and many of this are being seen in the heavens, it would be great signs that there would be um, momentous or calamitous things about to happen, right? And so Luke 21, verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas, uh, the sea and waves. And so there will be signs in the sun and there'll be signs uh, in the moon and the stars and on the earth, right? And so we're beginning to see there's things that have never been seen before that will tell us that Uh, We're heading toward toward calamitous times. In Acts chapter 2, verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And so once again, you're seeing that these can also take place there. And so I want to just kind of give a backdrop of how the Bible would use one word, right, signs, in a myriad of ways. And this is not uncommon for us today in how we can have one word that can mean a variety of different things, right? And so... Uh, not uncommon for how we would use language today. So how do we begin to communicate how it's being used? Well, here in our text today, we're talking about the second uh, distinguishing mark where it's divine intervention, confirmation, authentication of a person, this being a miracle that God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we're seeing in verse 54. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. Well, it begs the question then, so if, we understand that, then why bring all this up, Pastor? What's this? Why, why do you press this a little bit? Why do you want to point out signs and how signs are used in our language and how they would be able to be communicated to us? 
And the purpose behind that is that I want us to be able to see, or second point, how the purpose of signs as miracles are used in the Bible. What's the purpose of them in the Bible? What is it to do? What is it to communicate? What is it to authenticate for us? And throughout human history, or in, clearly throughout Bible history, God has used miracles to validate his messengers as being authorized to give his message. Right? So now we can look back and we have the message given to us. We have the inspired and errant word, and we go to this. This is our final uh, authority and test for all things that relates to us. And so we want to, if somebody begins to communicate, we're going to look to the scripture. We're going to say, hey, this is exactly how we know someone that speaks for God or doesn't speak for God. And are they are in line with what the scriptures already have already been said. But up to this point, men and women did not have the Bible. The Bible was being given to them as it was being inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God would substantiate a messenger for to communicate his message, and he would do so with miracles. He would do so with granting them the ability to perform signs. Um, and as a result of that, people would pay attention to this messenger because he could authenticate his message with signs. And this is exactly what we see even going back to uh, we saw earlier with the signs that were accomplished by the hand of Moses by God, right? So if you just think, listen to this passage in, in Exodus chapter 4, 1 through 9. Exodus 4, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So the question that Moses is saying, I'm about to go tell the people, I'm about to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, to let your people go, and they're not going to listen to me. He's not going to listen to me. It's like, walking into the superpower of that particular time, and whether it be the United States of America, whatever, walking into the president's uh, White House and to say, hey, you need to absolutely change the way everything is being ran here. And it's like, why would I listen to you? What authority do you have over me? And especially when that person, being Pharaoh, believes he is God, right? Now, your God's telling me who I am a God. I should listen to you. Why should I listen to you? And so this is exactly what Pharaoh said. They're not going to listen to me. The Lord, they're going to say to you, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. Why? Purposeful clause, verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So to substantiate the messenger, give him a sign, give him an ability to make a miracle. And here's a miracle, right? You had a staff in your hand, throw it on the ground, it turns into a serpent, turns into a snake. So much so, anything, well, that was a real, so much that Moses ran from it, right? And then he grabs it by the tail, all of a sudden it turns back into a staff. This does not happen regularly. This isn't the normal practice. Anybody throwing a staff down, it becomes a snake or picks up a snake and it becomes a staff, right? No, right? It's because this cannot be explained by the normal laws that we have, the natural laws that we have today. What well, doesn't end there, right? Verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, put, out your, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put it back inside your cloak. When he put it back, his hand back inside the cloak, he took it out again, and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. They will not believe you, God said, listen, or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter signs. They're going to believe the second miracle, right? So you put your hand in your cloak, pull it out. It's leprous, right? And they would all have believe him as unclean and would be fleeing from him. And so as a result of that, then he puts it back in, pulls it out, and it's normal. It's, it's, it doesn't have any problems with it. There's no disease in his skin. Verse 9, if they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, 
You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. So he gave him three signs. So why? What purpose? Not for himself, but the, the people would listen to the messenger of God because God had a message for his people. And that was going to be that ultimately he wanted his people to be freed from slavery by Pharaoh and in the hands of Pharaoh. And this isn't uncommon for the other prophets without, within the, the context of the Old Testament, even moving into the New Testament. They'll be able to perform signs. And the intent was not just for notoriety for that particular person so that he can make lots of money, but it was for the, the, the purpose of substantiating the very message of God and confirming the very message of God and authenticating the very message of God so that the people would listen to the messenger. Now, once again, I've told you before that sometimes miracles could be performed and it would not be uh, at the hands of a, a genuine prophet, right? So even the Old Testament would begin to say, if a miracle or a sign is accomplished at the hand of somebody, but it doesn't line up with the word of God that's already been given to you, then don't listen to him, even if that's an amazing sign had taken place, right? And so something happens that you cannot explain. Something happens that's completely out of the ordinary. And ultimately, it seems like that would be, that would be something that should, should authenticate the message if the word of God has already been revealed up to this point. So it's already been confirmed at this point, and it's not in line with that word of God. The Bible says, and still do not listen to the guy, despite the fact the miracle is there. Now, how does this tie to Jesus? Well, Jesus was actually God. Jesus is God, and so he was already authorized to speak for God without a sign. However, in order for the people at that particular time to understand that this, it was, Jesus was truly the Messiah, that Jesus is God, Jesus performed signs. After all, without signs, how would anyone be able to distinguish the true Messiah from a false claims, from a false Messiah, right? And so this is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was communicating there. And that would be the purpose of signs as miracles in the Bible, right? They had a purpose. It wasn't just that people could be able to communicate or do things uh, or be able to perform signs at random just because they wanted to. Jesus was authenticating his messengers for the express purpose of his message to the people, Right? And this is why it's important for us to do the third point, the proper understanding of what constitutes a sign or a miracle. Then if that's the case, if God has a message for his people, then the people have to be able to understand what, the, what, would, what would constitute a miracle and what wouldn't constitute a miracle. And if we're careless in how we communicate about signs, we're careless of how we communicate about miracles, then it can really uh, confuse people of what, to, what they should believe and, how the, and what things should they be looking for. Right, And so if you're always receiving a sign, you've always got some form of confirmation, then it can be dangerous to the people who, uh, that you're teaching. It can be dangerous to the people that you're discipling. It can be dangerous to the people that you're following. And so we want to make sure that we have uh, the, the biblical understanding of what constitutes a sign or a miracle and the dangers for those things that do not constitute a sign, a, a bad definition or an unclear definition of what an actual miracle is. And so from that, we want to make sure that we have that. What would be the dangers then? of not having a clear definition of signs. And this is where it gets very, very practical to you and I. This is where it will help you and I to think through carefully how the Bible would describe signs and how that would relate to us and how it relates to other people who talk to us. Because here's the issue. Most of the time, we give ourselves the benefit of doubt on how we communicate. But the, the problem there is that we communicate to a lot of people. And despite the fact that we understand our intentions, they do not. They only judge our actions, right? And so from that, it's the same way. We don't look to the intentions of other people. We judge what? Their actions. And so when someone says they speak for God or there's a, a miracle has happened, we've got to be able to understand, are they simply being careless with how they communicate? Or maybe there's confusion with how they communicate. But what does that mean? What, are, what constitutes then a miracle? And then from that miracle, what do they expect us to do with it? 
Meaning, if someone comes up to you and says, let me just tell you this amazing miracle that just transpired, therefore you should do, and they fill in the blank, are you mandated or should you be mandated to listen to them? Should you be mandated to respond to them and in, in, in the manner that they are requesting you to respond? And so this would be the intent why this would be extremely important. As we're seeing individuals on television or pastors or, or self-professing pastors all across the, the area, even though I don't think they're actually shepherding the people, uh, many times they make claims about the type of miracles that have transpired at their hands. And but the question is, is, is that actually true? Is that a miracle actually happen? For example, Benny Hinn, right? If he can heal on demand like it was at the hands of the apostles in the first century, if you want to substantiate that claim, why must it be that it happens at an event where you're going to be collecting an offering? Why don't you just go down to the local hospital and empty out everyone there that you come in contact with, and not only do they are healed, they're instantly healed without any problems and ultimately they're fully restored. Why wouldn't he do that? Well, it's because he's a charlatan, right? He's, he's a person who's taking money from individuals, but yet many don't understand what I'm communicating today, the danger of miracles and these miracles and self-professing miracles that are being accomplished at his hand within his ministry, and as a result of that, it's bringing much confusion much damage, and may I say much damning of souls because they're putting their trust in a man and not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the problem. So let's talk about, I'm just going to walk through a, a few reasons why an unclear definition of a miracle, all underneath the, the heading there, the proper understanding of what constitutes a sign or miracle is important to us. Why would I take so much time before we dive in even to the text, and we're going to get there, I promise you, to the text. But why would I spend so much time? And it's because if we don't have a proper understanding of what a sign is. We're going to read a passage like this out of this out of this text, and we're going to go, yep, I understand that. And then we're just going to lay on all of our bad understanding of, and bad teaching as it relates to signs, and we're going to import all this negative and false teaching into the text. And I don't want you to do that, right? We're, we don't live in an island, right? We, we, we're, we're importing things in the Scripture. We're inferring sometimes in the, things in the Scripture that aren't there based upon our current context, and that's dangerous. We need to go back to the original text, the original context, and understand how the Bible speaks of these things, how the Bible communicates, interacts with these things, and then pull those applicate, or pull that principle out of there. And from that, we can apply it in a myriad of ways, but we have to have the proper uh, interpretation so that we can then have the proper application. If we have a wrong interpretation, then we're clearly going to apply it poorly because we started with a wrong presupposition or started with a wrong premise, right? So let's look at these. Let me just give you a variety of dangers to having an unclear definition of a miracle. Number one, if we do not have a clear definition of a miracle, then we have no way of establishing Jesus' unique authority to speak for God, right? We want to believe who Jesus is. We need, not just want, we need to believe what Jesus says. And so if everything is a miracle, then everything can serve to validate that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, then how would he distinguish himself from everyone else? If everything that happens all the time is a miracle, and we talk about miracles some maybe sometime, somewhat flippantly, then if everything's a miracle all the time, then how do we substantiate who, is, who Jesus is and his, his claims? This is exactly what the end of our, our text is trying to help us to see in John chapter 20. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, purposeful clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, by, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so for the intent by writing 
This gospel is to be able to communicate the very signs that Jesus had done, which would distinguish him as the very son of God. And if everything's a miracle, then how is anything a miracle, right, that Jesus is actually performing? So we need to be clear because why? It helps to to distinguish who Jesus is. Number two, if we have a fuzzy understanding of miracles, then we will open ourselves up to all sorts of false teachings and claims to divine revelation. So someone will say, you should listen to me because I can perform a miracle or these miracles happen to me, and as a result of that, now I'm going to speak for God. I can speak for God. And so they would call themselves apostles today. This is dangerous because why? They're saying now they are giving revelation, new revelation from God, apart from the Scripture, in addition to the Scriptures, and that's dangerous, right? That's heresy. We, we, have, we have everything that's been given to us that pertains to life and godliness is already here. God has given us his word. That's what we need to trust and all we need to trust as it relates to uh, new life and godliness in that. However, if we have an unclear definition of a miracle, then if someone claims to speak for God, we can reasonably ask the person to show us a miracle and have a clear understanding of what we expect to constitute that validation. So if somebody says, hey, I'm a prophet, then do what the other prophets did. That's exactly what I was saying. It's exactly the point in uh, the second point I gave of Benny Hinn. The disciples could heal on demand. They walk up to somebody, right? So the guy who is um, uh, near the temple, he's asking for alms. And what does Peter say? Silver and gold have I not. What I do have I give unto thee. Rise and walk, right? And so get up, walk. They're healing people on demand, instantaneous healing. The guy couldn't walk. He now can walk instantly. It wasn't a process. You come to him three weeks from now, guess what? He still can walk, right? Many of the claims from those like Benny Hinn is that there can be somewhat emotional responses or there could be a variety of things that are just absolutely fake and it's all engineered to make it look like there was something phenomenal happen, happening and all of a sudden then it's, this is a claim that something amazing happened, but then you come to find those people uh, weeks later and they're not healed. Jesus would heal and this healing was full, instantaneous, and, as, and not just with Jesus but his apostles as well. And so we want to be able to make sure we can validate those who make a claim that they can speak for God then they need to be able to back that up. This is why Christianity is so good. We're not just, it's not a blind faith in the sense of like, there's not logic behind it. We, there's miracles that, that, that transpire, there's miracles that take place, but it's not a blind faith. There's a faith in the written word of God. And so the Bible has, uh, has been protecting its followers from the very beginning. God would substantiate and authenticate his speak, those who should speak for him and make it clear those who do not speak for him. Even in my own quiet time this week, I was studying about the, the kings that would go to war. And that after the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom had separated. And the northern kingdom was being led by wicked King Ahab. And the southern kingdom by Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was going to partner with King Ahab. And they're about to go to war. And they shouldn't have been partnering together because the northern kingdom was extremely wicked. And Jehoshaphat knew better than to, to partner up with the northern kingdom to go to war. And they said, let's, let's, let's ask of the Lord if we should go to war. And they had all these prophets that were prophesying exactly, supposedly prophesying, exactly what King Ahab wanted to hear. And Jehoshaphat, having enough discernment, goes, is this the only prophets we have? Is there anyone else that could, would prophesy for the Lord? And so they, they go get another prophet. And this prophet always prophesied negative to Ahab. And I wonder why, because Ahab was so wicked. He was not doing what God would want him to do. And so as a result, this prophet was faithful to what God told him to say. And as a result, he always had a negative prophecy. And so in this, they finally bring him in and challenge him. To, he has to speak what is true. And immediately he speaks a, a prophecy against them. He begins a challenge against them, right? And so all throughout, 
You see, there, you can always find a charlatan. You can always find somebody who's willing to, to speak for you, right? The Balaam's for hire. We've saw that before and even in our studies uh, through First and Second Peter with Balaam. And so ultimately, you can always find somebody who's willing to be hired out for money to say whatever you want them to say. But ultimately here, prophets have to speak where God has spoken and should not speak where God does not speak. So number three, without a clear definition of miracles, we tend to reduce God's activity in the world to a handful of unique acts and miss the overwhelming majority of God's work. Why is it that the Bible constantly refers back to the miracles that were transpiring at the hand of Moses, right? That was a major deliverance. Don't get me wrong. That was a major time of God's activity within the hand, uh, within the work of his people. And there was clearly a variety of other miracles that had transpired after that. But if you look back, there's the, the history of, of uh, biblical history, all right, that's been recorded for us to be able to know what was trans- that's taken place and has transpired. And the miracles that are taking place are, are relatively small in comparison, right? And so if we're only looking for these signs as, as the, the, all that God's doing, we're going to miss God's sovereign work all throughout history. That God was ordaining these things to happen even if it, apart from miracles. Just this ordinary providence and how he was carrying things out. And so I want us to be able to see the, a couple things, hopefully carefully, and us to think through those. One, it might be helpful to write down. If we have a poor definition of miracles, then we're going to reduce God's activity of all the things that he's been doing throughout. And so I want us to see it in three different ways. One, ordinary providence. Ordinary providence. So if we understand ordinary providence as simply as this. God is sovereign, Right? Everything that is going to happen today is being filtered by and through the hands of God. Nothing will happen to me. Nothing will happen through me apart with God's knowledge of it and God allowing it. That doesn't mean that God is putting, actively putting sin in me or putting sin in anyone else. He does not take any credit for that. But ultimately, God is allowing certain things and has ordained certain things to happen because he is in control of all things, right? And so that would be what we would call ordinary providence. And so in certain ways, everything is a God thing, right? So we want to talk about, let me just tell you the greatest God thing that just happened to me. This is a miracle. Let me just tell you what God did. It's a God thing. Well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, everything's a God thing, right? My heart's beating now. Is that a God thing? Yeah, because I'm not making my heart beat right now. I'm not, thinking, I'm not telling my lungs to pump oxygen to my body. Why? Because that's a God thing. So he's sovereign over my life. That's a simple ordinary providence and and guess what many times you go when you guys talk about this it's like you're trying to steal glory from god we should be giving god glory for the our heartbeat we should be giving god glory for the breaths that we take we should be giving god glory for every moment that we're alive no one's t- attempting to take god's glory away we're just saying we got to be careful on how we talk about it and so god is sovereign over everything he's allowed everything uh that has happened to us for a purpose and so he is very specific in that and so that would be ordinary providence and then we have to acknowledge that there's unusual providence. There's ordinary providence. That's everything is a God thing in some general way because God's sovereign over all things. But then there's unusual providence. And this means sometimes God acts in unusual ways. And these can be some of the quirky things that happen to us that we can't quite explain. Right? Now, we, you're not hear me saying this is miraculous. None, none of this is miraculous in the way that I'm trying to bring clarity to. So this would be... Um, um, Hey, I would put my, I was going to put my house up for sale and I was going to go and I was going to communicate this and I was going to put the house up for sale. And before I could even put it into sale, I was, I was driving my car and, uh, I, my car broke down and I was having to change my tire and I was having some difficulty and this truck pulled up behind me and this guy pulled up behind me and he was talking to us and he was helping me fix my tire and 
it was just great conversation. We start talking about things of God, and as a result of talking about things of God, he's like, man, I just moved here looking for a house, and ultimately my house sold, sold for more money than I could ever imagine it being sold for, a cash buyer at that particular point, and all because my, my tire uh, blew up, and this guy stopped and helped me, and it, and it was sold before I could even put it on the market. What a miracle! Okay, it can be explained, though, outside by God's providence or inside the context of God's providence. Is that ordinary providence? No, right? It's not something that happens every day. That's not my heart's pumping blood and my lungs are, are pumping oxygen throughout my body. Not the ordinary providence. It's an unusual providence. And sometimes God's acts in these unusual ways, but it's still not a miracle in the way that we should describe miracles, right? Why? Should we give God glory for that? Absolutely, we should give God glory for that, right? God ordained that unusual act of the providence for our good and for his glory. And so we need to communicate this is an amazing, unusual act of providence. But that would not constitute a sign as what we're describing in our text today and a sign as we would be describing uh, all throughout the Bible's history. It would just be, that's why I'm trying to give you definitions to think through. Ordinary providence, right? Everything's a God thing. All even the most mundane things that you're doing. And then two, unusual providence. Sometimes God acts in unusual ways like I described in that particular story. And then number three, miraculous providence. Miraculous providence. And this is where I use that term purposely. It's miracles that take place. And these are exceedingly rare cases. Exceedingly rare cases. God will sometimes violate his normal or ordinary means of operation and act in an extraordinary way. Right? Water from a rock. Manna from heaven. Right? The death angel <laughs> flying through and destroying everyone's firstborn. That does not have blood over the doorpost. Right? The threshold. The ability to it was a leprous hand thing, right? Pretty amazing, pretty phenomenal, right? The staff to the serpent, the serpent to the staff. You know, heal someone from a distance, as Jesus is going to do in our story today, right? The ability to have a lame person walk. Now, those are miracles. It cannot be explained by science, or it cannot be explained by all the things that we would be able to understand. And how they would begin to work. And then sometimes God can accomplish things in amazing, miraculous ways. Or not sometimes. God does accomplish things in amazing, miraculous ways. And those are times we need to give Him glory. And those were often accompanied and associated to, once again, do what purpose, as we talked about before? To authenticate a messenger and a message. And so we need to be careful in how we utilize miracles. Or how we communicate about miracles. Not utilize them. How we communicate about miracles. Miracles are these divine acts by God and upon which God has acted in rare ways and purposefully in rare ways because why he was substantiating a message and a messenger, right? And so we want to be cautious. And so how do you communicate about the things that God has done in your life and that we want to give him glory for? We say probably the vast majority of those, right, are unusual providence, Unusual providence. So we want to be cautious how we begin to communicate about that because it can be dangerous. Number four, 
Not having a clear definition of a miracle often leads to a foolish and perverse fascination with pseudo-signs, right? False signs that we want to believe are true signs. This can result in a replacement form of spirituality where individuals reject the ordinary means of grace in their lives, focusing more on the extraordinary experiences. What does that mean? If you see everything as a miracle or a variety of just the really cool things that you can view, you're going to be looking for signs, right? I didn't know who I should marry, and then and I just I, I just said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. The next person I see, that's going to, the next person walks through this, God, I'm asking you. Next person walks through this door, that's the person I'm going to marry, right? What? Well, Rather than the ordinary providence, the ordinary means of God's grace, what does he say? Marry whomever you wish as long as they're in the Lord, right? We're needing a sign to confirm things and authenticate things that the Bible says we don't need. And this is the danger because why? We have a sign-seeking mindset, a sign-seeking mentality because why? We're rejecting the ordinary means of grace that God's given us. Know him through his word. And so when we don't trust that, then we're we're becoming exactly what he condemned when Jesus walked the face of the earth, you are a wicked and perverse generation that's always seeking a sign. Why? Because we're not trusting by faith what he's already said to us. We have to trust by faith what God has already communicated to us. And if, if not, then how do the just walk by faith? We're not. We're walking by signs and confirmations of all the things that God has done for us. Or we think that God has done for us. And so we're seeking pseudo-signs. Number five, not number five, not having a clear definition of a miracle can lead individuals to make questionable decisions. Feeling that their decisions were confirmed by unusual circumstances and situations instead of being confirmed by a correct interpretation of Scripture. Thus, a poor definition of miracles can lead to a shortcut in pleasing God. Right? So that's once again, I, how do I know I'm supposed to marry this person? It's because they walked through the door. I prayed and asked God to give me a sign, and the next person walked in was was this person, right? And so that's the person I should marry. Well, there's a lot of things. Are they a believer, right? Marry whom of you wish, only in the Lord. But if they're not in the Lord, then is that what God's will is for me? And this is where ultimately we think that we can please God apart from what his words already said. And then lastly, a muddled definition of miracles can lead individuals to attach distorted and unwarranted significance to ordinary and unusual events, right? Meaning we get confirmations about things that, that already and, and are liking, Right, I, w- I already want to do this, and I'm now looking for a sign to confirm what I already wanted to do. And so then I'm going to go ahead and do this because why? I wanted to do it. So you're looking for things, and so because of that, our muddled definition of that can lead us to then have distorted or distorted or unwarranted significance to the things that are just ordinary or maybe unusual providence. What are you to interpret from that? God is good. God is great. What he does is, is amazing, and he, we should trust him, but we n- not necessarily should take more uh, read more into it than just that. That's abnormal. And God allowed that. It was great. I praise him for that. But we should look. We should not be reading into activities and events necessarily uh, where it's not being communicated to via scripture. And so we can have we can have difficulties. Now, I know in this room, having come from Southern Baptist culture myself, a variety of poor teaching on this particular subject, that many of us have interpreted a myriad of events in our lives through a variety of ways. And so... What I'm attempting not to do is to attack you or any, any person in this room specifically, right? I was discipled in the context of, of, of a church, churches, that uh, much of this could be described and it could be much signs that you could be seeing and examining. And, and the reality in that is that um, 
it led to much confusion in my own life, but ultimately from that, it was not extremely helpful. And as I look back on it, for the most part, I was really just a Bible guy. I was just a truth guy. And I had some kind of weird ways because I was being taught these type of ways to view things. But ultimately, the primary is I really look back on decisions were wisdom decisions made with the framework of Scripture. And I would probably say for the vast majority of us in this room, despite the fact you may have similar stories, a variety of things that you interpreted as signs and, and uh, miracles in many ways, were the same way as mine, right? It is within the fr- framework of, of true biblical Christianity, within the framework of scriptures that were helping to shape and guide these things. And ultimately, in the, in the end of the day, it was a wisdom decision regardless. And so there was no sin involved whatsoever. The reality is the reason I bring cautions there is I want us all to examine it so that we can not only know how to look at these things moving forward, but look back and re-examine how those things were viewed, right? And so I was dating a young lady who eventually became my wife, and uh, we were dating to marry. She was a Christian. She was walking in faithfulness to God's Word, and so ultimately I could have married her whenever I want. But I spent two and a half years looking for a sign as to when to marry her. How much simpler would it have been if somebody just said, you ever seen 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31? Marry whomever you wish as, when, as long as you're in the Lord. So, man, if you can marry now, just pick a, pick a time. Whatever's going to work for her schedule, work for your schedule, just do it. For two and a half years, though, I'm reading through the Proverbs every day. And every time I got to Proverbs 31, I'm like, this might be the time that I'm going to get the word from the Lord. I can proceed with this marriage. It was just foolishness because why? I didn't need that. The Bible had already told me I can marry whomever I want. I can marry her. Is she in the Lord? Yes then I can marry whenever I want to. And so I can rest in the fact that God is not going to spell out everything for me, but this is what happens many times when you're being trained and taught that everything needs to be looking for a variety of pseudo-type signs. So all I'm trying to say is I'm not speaking for your spirituality, but I am saying we should be cautious with that because the Bible's not going to map out every decision for us. And if we think that, many times we can be paralyzed by fear and not trust in the Lord because why we're always looking for a sign. And this is why it's extremely important as we're thinking through this, because this is exactly what Jesus is going to be challenging in the text itself, right? So before we dive in, let me give you one more backdrop here. The next major point, the first sign of Jesus' ministry that's recorded in Scripture. If you remember, turn back to chapter 2, was the wedding uh, wedding at Cana. It's the very first sign recorded in all of Scripture, uh, period, not just the very first sign at Cana, (laughs) but the very first sign, period, that's recorded in history. Jesus may have performed another sign, but it's nowhere listed, nowhere recorded in any of the Bible. So this is the very first one that we have listed here. And so Jesus performed by turning water into wine. We did an entire sermon on that, so I'm not going to rehash that. There's an entire sermon you can listen about that. So that was the very first sign that Jesus recorded. And it's interesting in that, that very first sign that Jesus recorded in verse 11, uh, it says that this, the the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I didn't say anyone else believed in him, but his disciples believed in him. And I think it's important for us because why? The disciples were already believing, right? Disciples were already believing. They were already following him, right? And this was important for us to see that. I want to show that a little bit more here. Which leads us to then the second of the major signs that John records in his gospel is where we're finally in our text today. And I hope we can blow through this pretty quickly uh, and help us to be able to see some major things, make clear of it. And then we'll end with one final point, which is the major point of why I did all of this work, this background for us is that this very last takeaway uh, in our text. But the second of the major signs that John records in his gospel is the healing of the official's 
sons. Let me just walk through this kind of briefly um, and uh, walk, just make sure we understand the very context of what we're studying. And then one major point, and we will be finished and finished on time. So after the two days, verse 43 of John chapter 4, what two days? The two remaining days that he stayed in Samaria, right? So the woman at the well goes into the, the town. All the townspeople come out. They want to hear, could this be the Messiah? And they begin to believe him. They begin to believe the word that he's saying. They ask him to stay two days, and he does. And then uh, uh, what's amazing with this is that the entire, almost the entire town comes to faith in, in Christ Jesus. And so after those two days, he departed for Galilee. And it says here, parenthetically, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I think it's simply just meaning his own country, his own people, right? And so he's not in his hometown here. What was his hometown? Where was that? Well, born in Bethlehem, hometown would be Nazareth, right? So his hometown. So he's not going to go to Nazareth yet, but he will. And clearly he's rejected at Nazareth. So this is a true statement that he's going to be rejected. But I think it's, it's more in line with what John has already told us about Jesus, right? So what does this mean? What's this parenthetical statement? I think it's exactly saying what we've seen all along is that they're, they're believing in signs. They're not believing in him. And so as a result of that, they reject him, right, despite the fact he does signs. And this is what the, the gospel writer John, John the apostle, has been communicating to us. Remember John one eleven, He came to his own, Jesus did, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the point. This is what he's saying. So yes, is it going to be even driven more clearly when he actually does go to Nazareth? Yes. But I think the simple translation here is that he's saying, when a person goes to an area... Um, that people are familiar with, the, with, with you and that people are familiar with that they're looking for certain things. Sometimes their tradition that comes behind it blinds them, right, to the very fact that things need to, be, need to be happening. But listen, the Samaritans weren't quite looking for, they didn't have all the information, did they? And yet they gather more information, and as a result of gathering more information, the entire Samaritan village comes to faith in Jesus. But these should have been the ones that should have been looking for him, and yet they're the ones who reject him. And so the old adage says, what familiarity breeds contempt. This is exactly what's being spoken of here in this particular passage. So he departs for Galilee, and then he, um, uh, he doesn't have any honor in his own hometown. But then it's interesting, then, what's then said in verse 45. So how are we to understand this? This is why the parenthetical statement is listed. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And, of course, Nazareth would be in Galilee. It's, Galilee is a region just like Samaria is a city, but it's also a region, and Judea uh, is, is a region. So when you think about that, you need to broaden it out to like north, uh, like the metro Atlanta, right? So you begin to see that's an entire region, not a specific town. And so he goes into uh, the Galilean area, and the Galileans welcomed him. Why did they welcome him? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had, gone, had too gone to the feast. So they welcome him. Right? So what is that communicating to us? What are we to take away from this communication about what's transpiring? I believe it's communicating to us exactly what was communicated at the, the feast that happened at the Passover, right? Remember John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Why? When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they had a general belief in him that was just that he could perform signs. What did they not believe about him? That he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, he was going to be a suffering servant, he was going to die for the sins of the people, that he was the Lord, that he was God, right? So these are the things that John 
the apostle is writing so that we will pick up on, that we will understand. But that is not what they understood. And so they welcomed him because why? Here comes the sign maker. Here comes the sign doer, the man that can perform a variety of feats. Let's go check him out. It's no different than us. Hey, there's going to be fireworks. Let's go watch the fireworks. It'll be a spectacle. Let's go watch it. Same premise here, right? Let's just go observe this. Let's go check this out, right? And this is exactly how, as I'll read to the very end, um, how individuals looked at him, right? When we go see certain things. And then others just used him because they, they needed the signs that he was going to perform. And this is exactly what's taking place with the individual that shows up. So there's a sign-believing faith that the individuals had. He can at least do crazy cool stuff. Let's go check it out, right? Let's go. They didn't have television then. Let's go watch this. Let's go see what he's going to do. And if we can benefit from it, great. If can, he can turn, uh, if he can give us bread, we don't have to work. We'll just come and eat his bread. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to just have him take care of us and have welfare for us? Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, important. What, was Cana, what happened to Cana in Galilee before? What was that? The wedding, the very first sign, right? The very first miracle that's taken place. Now he's back there. Where, where, and it's exactly what transpires here, where he had made the water wine. So we're making sure we, we catch that. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill, right? So once again, both are in the region of, of, the, of Galilee, Right, So you're in the northern region of Galilee, you have the, the Sea of Galilee. And right at the top of the Sea of Galilee, or toward the top of the Sea of Galilee, you're going to have Capernaum. It's going to be 16 miles away from Cana in Galilee, where the wedding was going to take place. And so you're going to begin to see it's a northern city. It's the Sea of Galilee here. It's going to be at the top of there. And then uh, to the um, southwest, it would be backward for you. So and then southwest is where then Cana is going to be. And this is where he's going to be. And so this man had heard Jesus had come into the region of Galilee. His son's sick, and he travels 16 miles to come to Jesus, right? So this is important. And it says that this man was an official. What does that mean? Well, probably he was of the service of Herod of Antipas. Herod of Antipas. He was a tetrarch of Galilee. What does a tetrarch mean? When the Roman Empire, they had governors that were going to be over various regions, and this would be a governor over one of four divisions of a country or province. So in this country or province area, there was going to be four governors, and this guy was going to be one of the four governors. Uh, and so he was of service of this guy named Herod Antipas. And so uh, Herod of Antipas was there from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. And Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. What do we know of Herod the Great? We well, tried to eradicate all the newborn babes, right, the newborn boys. Why? Because he heard a king had been born, right? That king would be Jesus. And so as a result, he tried to kill Jesus. Well, this is one of his sons. And now he's in control and so this guy is, uh, was in control of this, and this guy worked, this, no, this nobleman's son, or they say, or the official here, worked for Herod Antipas, right? And so uh, this is going to be the key. And so um, from that, this guy's traveling 16 miles up, right? So once again, when I say up, or if you're heading south, why are you, most of us, we speak of it geographically. I'm heading south. I'm heading down, right? We're going down to Atlanta, right? That's not true. That's not how we should speak. Ultimately, you could be heading up a mountain, right? And so here, you're going to see that he's going to be heading up. Because why? All throughout the passage, what does it say here? Verse 47, he's going to come down, ask him to come down and heal his son, right? Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him, right? And so the intent here for us to understand is Galilee, uh, and especially Cana and Galilee, was in the Galilean hill country, right? And then the, the Sea of Galilee 
was where the water would go to the very valley areas, right? And so this is why you would head down as far as uh, from the hill country to an area that was below sea level. And so uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, you're still 700 feet below sea level. And so this is where they were going to be. So we'd still have to traverse up to go to Cana. And so just to have you an understanding of geography and, and the setting, this is what was taking place. So his, his son was ill, traveled 16 miles, very ill. Uh, and so verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death, right? Uh, not a doctor, but ultimately this was a serious situation, and so he needed help. And so Jesus said to him, listen to Jesus' response. Unless you, you being plural here, unless you people see, and it's the plural form verb there to, to see, so he's not speaking of this um, uh, uh, publican here, this official. Ultimately, he's saying that, man, everyone in this region, unless you guys see miracles, right, unless you guys see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So this guy comes up to him. He knows the type of belief he has, and Jesus rebukes him. Now, why would he do that? Why would he communicate that? And here's what's really key for us to understand and why it's so important for us to understand signs and miracles, understand genuine Christianity, understand Jesus for who he is. Many of us have heard the testimony of an individual named Ted Turner, right? Based on testimonies that I've heard from him or about him, it was that, man, I, I wanted to go in ministry. I had desires to be a pastor. And his sister was diagnosed with lupus, and he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal his sister of this disease, body-ravaging disease called lupus. And when his sister was not healed, then he does what? He rejects the supposed faith that he had and now denies the existence of God and the, the wor- clearly the worship of God outright. Now, at here, this is exactly what we're seeing. It's a sign-believing faith. We're believing something about God but not the God that the Bible speaks of, not the God that desires to be worshipped regardless, right? And yet we flippantly come to God with these demands, not in an attitude many times of humility, but an attitude of, of just that, an expectation that becomes a demand and a demand that becomes a need, and then that need now becomes, or the desire that becomes an, uh, a demand that becomes a need that becomes an expectation. God, you'd better heal them. Now, if God is the creator of all things and we're his subservient creation, then who are we to make demands of God at all? Yeah, this is exactly how we approach God many times and how this person is coming. You need to come and save my my son. Come save him. Come down now, right? Now, if he understood to whom he was talking, he would not talk to God that way. And yet many times this is how we view God and our interaction relationship with him. Right. God owes us. God must do this for us or otherwise he is not God. Or I'm going to withdraw my love for him. And is that not what happens? Is that not how we many times can respond when bad things, bad things as it relates to us, happen to us? Death of a spouse, death of a child, difficult situations, loss of a job. And all of a sudden, it's God, how could you? And then I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like studying. God betrayed me. And then you see a, a, a lull period where they're not seeking the Lord. They're not honoring the Lord. And that the reality is what's causing all of that. God did not behave in the manner that you deem is appropriate or right or good. 
As if somehow we can tell God what to do at any point in our life. Confessing Him as Lord means that He is already Lord and we are just yielding to that Lordship. Not that He is, as Tim communicated last week, that He wasn't Lord at some point. He has always been Lord, will always be Lord moving forward. Before we ever showed up on this planet, He has been Lord, is Lord, and will forever be Lord. Our yielding to Him as Lordship is for our benefit, not His. He is self-sufficient. And so in this, this is what we exactly see. And, it's, it's, and this is why it's important for us to see this. This is how people view this. This is why Tim and I speak so often about negatively about the charismatic movement and about making sure we understand miracles and prophecy and divine revelation. Why? There is going to be a backlash in our nation. And it will be a backlash to hating God. And it will be a backlash to not trusting God. And it will be a backlash to pseudo signs and pseudo miracles that do not hold water. Because it's not a faith based upon the Word of God. And that's why we want to train you how to study the Bible, how to know the Bible. Because why? The the broken and shattered lives of the people that live in and around you who are buying into this hashtag blessed child and daughter of the king kind of mentality is, is, is going to run into the one true living God and he's not going to do the things they want to have happen to them and they're going to need somebody to help them make sense of the world. And it's... It's a church like this and a myriad of other churches that can say, you've, you've had a wrong definition of who God is. And I'm here to help you. And it's, listen, if we're honest, it's all around us. It's all around us. And I don't say this to be condemning. I don't say this to be unkind. I say it the very same way that Jesus is. You won't believe unless you see signs. And we need you to understand, you need to believe because Jesus is Lord, Period. And we were trying to help you to see that because why? It, it will be a backlash. Just trust me. It's coming. And this health, wealth, prosperity gospel. I mean, what happens if we go to war and there's another Great Depression? How, how are we going to view Christ then? We're scrimping and saving everything just to get by. Are we not a daughter and a son of the king then? Is God not good? Is it just my own personal sin that caused this? Are we got the theology of Job's friends? How are we just supposed to see this? Are we supposed to be Jesus' suffering servant wrong, in, a, in a negative way now? Or do we just trust God in good times and in bad times? And so we have a, a, an infatuation with signs and miracles and confirmations is, with poor definitions. This is why this goes bad. So Jesus rebukes him. But the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's begging him. He's pleading with him. This was a humbling thing for him to do, I'm sure. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Same thing Jesus did with his mother, the first miracle, right? What does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Step down, right? Graciously, kindly, step down. And then in his compassion, performs a miracle. In his compassion, you guys, you're always going to look for a sign. You don't trust me. You should, if you knew who I was, you would come for that living water that was just preached about last week. And it would spring up in you and you'd never thirst again. You'd come for salvation first. Not just the healing of your son. Your son will live. And now here's the key point. Here's one of the first key points. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went, down, went on his way. 
Come with me, come with me. I need you to come where, because I don't, I don't believe, I, you can do signs, but I don't think you can just do it from a distance. You need to come down with me, and you, I believe you can do this. I believe you've done these signs before, as, as we saw in Judea at the Passover. Listen, if you'll come to my son, I think you can, you can make my son better. And Jesus says, dude, I don't need to go to your son. He's healed. Go, go home. And the man believed him. That's good, right? He's believed the word. That's faith. Believing in the word of Jesus. And then it gets confirmed. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, here it is, believed. What does that mean? Well, that unto salvation. Believed his word. And then the word, the miracle was confirmed. And when the miracle was confirmed, he had saving faith. And not just him and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Trans, transferring people to believe in Jesus' word, not just his signs. Because why? Believing his signs isn't enough for salvation. This is exactly what we were studying. Uh, the, the comparison between the woman at Samaria last week and Nicodemus. Nicodemus had this type of faith that this man has. You can do signs. The woman on the well didn't see any of those signs and didn't need to see those signs. Jesus told her everything and she believed his word. And then the Samaritans believed his word. And now this individual here, this official, believed his word. And then his word was confirmed and he believed him unto salvation. Which leads to the last point, and this will be extremely fast. The evidence of signs does not produce faith but simply confirms faith. The evidence of signs does not, does not produce saving faith. Nicodemus didn't have it. The Pharisees didn't have it, right? This man didn't have it. It simply confirms faith. So let me just give you a myriad of verse. I'm going to do this very quickly and then we'll be done. The evidence of signs does not produce faith. Let me tell you all the times in Scripture, not all the times, a myriad of times in Scripture where you said that they don't believe Jesus despite the signs. John 12, 37, same passage that we're in, same book that we're in. We'll be coming to it soon enough. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Though he had done all these signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John eleven forty five to 48 Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. This is the raising of Lazarus. Believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Did they, did they respond in saving faith to Jesus? Absolutely not, right? It's, it's not, signs do not produce saving faith. Matthew 6, 4, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Mark 8, 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus had just healed a blind man, remember, that was been blind since birth. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. There's a myriad of reasons why people were coming to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying, you're just coming because you want welfare, you want a handout. Luke 23, 8, when Herod saw Jesus, this is the same Herod of Antipas I spoke of earlier, saw Jesus, he was very glad, 
For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wasn't going to worship him. Do your tricks. I want to see them. But then we do see the evidence of signs only confirms faith. Confirms it. We saw that in the first miracle at Cana, right? This is the first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. They were already believing his word. They already believed the word about who he was. And then now they saw the signs and it only confirms it deepens their faith same thing we saw in this passage right the man believed the word that jesus spoke and then the word was confirmed and the saving of his son and then he believed him unto salvation and is exactly what i read to you earlier john chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 the very purpose of the whole book signs were given and are given to us to see that if we're already willing to be in the word and believe the word that the signs that are accompanied in these writings would help to confirm a faith not to produce faith and this is why you're not going to convince anyone. Right? If only God would write it in the sky. God, why don't God just raise somebody from the dead? Listen, if this person could be cured of cancer, I just know people would believe. What a miracle that would be. As we studied this a few weeks ago in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus is in hell. And he says, well, send back a man from the dead. Because clearly they would listen to a man who had been raised from the dead. Do you remember the passage I read a few moments ago? John 9. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. What were they angry about? Their laws, their traditions. But then listen to how the people responded. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? He had just made a blind man see. Remember the other passage I read, John eleven forty five to 48 so many believed Mary when they saw that what Jesus had done. What did Jesus do? He raised a man from the dead. Raised a man from the dead. Remember? Lazarus. Did the Pharisees believe him? No. Men and women, that's why we need to know the gospel. We need to know the word. We need to understand how miracle, what, what it constitutes a miracle, what doesn't, the purpose of miracles, so that we can lead people to this. The word of God. And this word This inspired word that we read leads them to the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has saving faith. That's why we need to understand what signs are about and how we're to interpret signs and teach the Bible because there's so much, so much manipulation from charlatans who want to pad their pockets and not see men and women redeemed and saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.